Morning, everybody. So um, glad you're here. I'm sure you got tired of setting your clock for the fifth, sixth time um, during the night and realizing, okay, this is pointless. Let's just let it roll. Uh, I don't know how many of you, I woke up this morning thinking, are we doing church by candlelight today or how are we going to pull this off? Um, so thankful that the power went back on and we got to do all this this morning. So let me pray and we're going to jump into God's word this morning. Father God, thank you that you're, um, that I love that phrase in that song, Lord, where you did not want heaven without us, so you sent heaven down. Jesus, what a wonderful name you are. And we just worship and praise that name and pray as we look at your word this morning, um, your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us, um, teach us from your word. May these words coming out of my mouth be your words. And um, may we, God, just really be able to draw, know that we're drawing closer and knowing you better because of your word this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, before I dive in, though, I do have to give some good news. Um, though you, many of you know we just moved here Tuesday, and um, we had inadvertently let, we have cats. Basically, they're my wife's fifth and sixth child, and because um, I have four sons. so they don't. Um, She loves those cats. We let one out a little early and was gone for four days, and it's, I'm pleased to announce it came back la- last night, she opened the door, it came back, and my wife, I, I, was, in the, I was in our bedroom doing, I think I was working on, on, a, on a sermon a little bit, and um, I hear, Bo's home, Bo's home, I just hear this, I mean, so if you saw my wife a little down previously, now she's... She has a whole new, she's in the nursery now, now and, the, and the babies are getting the total benefit of that right now of a happy, happy mommy. <laughs> oh God, so, so, you know, it's no surprise really to many of us that we are living in a time when tolerance is of the highest value and absolute truth is really ultimate heresy. Don't you, don't you feel like you see that a lot in our society today? I mean, some examples. I mean, if you, were to, if you or I were to speak out on what we believe uh, is the biblical view of things like marriage or the roles of a husband and wife or sex and sexuality or abortion, many other things, you'll most, you, we do that and we'll most likely find ourselves eventually feeling pretty alienated from the views of society, unfortunately. The reality is, and like I said, it's no surprise that our society is becoming more and more secularized. We are more now more than ever living in a post-Christian world. The truth is that we as followers of Jesus are really more than ever, we are faced with a difficult decision of how are we to respond how do we respond to our society going more and more secular and more and more post-Christian? Well, some Christians respond by blending in. I mean, there's really multiple ways, but some respond by blending in to the culture, claiming to be Christ followers, yet actually adop- adopting most, if really not all, of the culture's values uh, that they see around them. We've seen that. We've all been tempted uh, to do that. I mean, think about it. As Christians, we divorce just as much as non-Christians do. Um, We have a lot of the same addictions that non-Christians do. We, many of us, strive for health, wealth, and prosperity, just like the culture around us. 
It's a big temptation. Another way we may respond is complete, total withdrawal sometimes. I mean, locking ourselves away, not having anything, any possible contact with the culture around us or those that, and, and, and those, the Christians that we're going to, if they do indulge in it, we're going to probably judge though, them in a way that they should not be uh, engaging in that. You know, we'll go buy a ranch somewhere, and that's our dream is just to get out of society. Well, another one, I see another uh, response is to go to war. A lot of times Christians feel like the best, okay, well, we're just going to go to war with the culture around us. We regularly throw our views out in conversations, or these days we throw them out on Facebook, and, or we engage in protests, making sure that people know where we, and of course God, stands on these issues. We see that happening also. How then? How then are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus in a culture that is so counter to what we see in the scriptures? Well, you guys, this is what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of months. I am really excited about this new series that we're starting in first, the book of First Peter. It's going to be great. It's going to be a good time. And by the way, if you are in the, either in the women's Bible study or the men's Bible study, or you go to the Sunday morning class, adult class that we have here, each week you are going to be going over questions that I'm going to be giving to your leaders that are going to send them out to you. And by the way, if you're not in one of those groups, you can't make one of those groups, uh, let me know. I can get you. On, it's all on Google Docs. We can send them to you too. Because the whole idea is we really want to start really marinating in what we're learning on Sunday mornings. We really want to start sending, spending more time with the priority of what God is saying on Sunday morning. Because what I have to say is, listen, I don't want you learning anything else but what I say. That's not it at all. We just feel like it would be great to be able to talk more and more and to go deeper and look at some other passages and have some discussions and maybe questions that you walk away from. Like Sundays we go, how was that sermon? Oh, that was great. And then we're done. Why not have a time to discuss it and talk? So that's what we're uh, going to be doing. If you have a group that meets somewhere else or some other guys that get together, whatever, let me know. I can uh, get you those questions. If you miss the sermon and you don't, if you're not here on a Sunday, they're always available on our website. You can listen to the podcast all, every time. I, Scott, they get up there pretty quick, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, he puts them up right after the service here, and so eventually they load pretty quick. So you're going to be getting those materials as soon as probably Sunday, Monday, so you can be answering questions and really do it. Really, we're giving you homework, okay? I was trying to not say it that way. We're giving you some homework, but it's a chance for you to come ready to discuss, okay? Ready to discuss to these groups. So it's my prayer and my hope that over these next few months that you, will not, you and I will be encouraged in who we are as followers of Jesus and how to best live in this culture that really is at odds with our faith. Okay, so let's dive in. We're going to dive in. First Peter, okay? Turn to First Peter. It's near the back of your Bible, right after James, I believe. Um, the word, some of the words will be up on the screen as well. So just the first verse, Peter. First Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here's what's happening. Right out of the chute here, Peter is establishing his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ, okay? He was obviously, we know he was one of the original 12. He had been specifically sent out to preach the word and send the good, to, with the good news to the, the gospel. He was also an eyewitness 
to the resurrected Jesus. So he has a lot of authority. Now remember, though, Jesus changed his name. Remember? His name was Simon. But Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means... You know that? Yeah, which means rock. And now we got to understand, Jesus didn't change Peter's name to Simon the Rock because Simon Peter's faith was so rock-like. Remember? Remember what, what, Simon, uh, what Peter did when he was still Simon, I believe? Well, he actually was Peter when he did this, is that he actually had rejected and denied that he knew Jesus during Jesus' trial. He did it three times. Years later, though, we see that Jesus restores him. Remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, comes and the men are out there fishing and he's fixing a little barbecue, a little fish, you know, a little fish and chips in the morning for the guys and getting ready. And when Peter jumps off the boat, runs and sees him, you know, I can't imagine what Peter feels. He knew that he did all that denying. And what did Jesus do? Essentially what he did, he restored the man and said, Peter, I want you to go do and I want you to feed my flock I want you to shepherd my sheep, and I want you to tend to my lambs. I got to tell you guys, that is so, the story of Peter is so reassuring. I know for me, it's to know that God can mightily use people that fail. Isn't that awesome? When I think, oh man, what a, who am I? God mightily uses people fa- fail. Peter failed miserably, but God used him in amazing ways. We see later um, what we're seeing this, in this later address, we see that this book is addressed to believers, okay? We see this even here. We see this addressed to believers that are dispersed throughout this vast area, including several region, regions that was called Asia Minor, okay? Or today's Turkey. I was going to, you know how preachers put a map up on the thing? I was going to put a map on that. I went, oh, probably most of us went to public school, so we wouldn't understand it anyway. Um, so I think maps don't help me anyway, so a lot of times. So um, it's in Turkey. Basically, if you think of, you know where Turkey is, that's where Paul, this huge area that he sent this open letter, really, that was meant to be read by church after church after church. This area, just to give you an idea, was approximately 129,000 square miles. That's huge. I mean, California is 159,000 square miles. So he sent this out to this open letter to these Christians who were scattered in these small, tiny little villages, okay? They were meeting in small, tiny... Our church would be a mega church. Okay, they were meeting in small little churches in small little homes. Now it's important before we dive totally in to understand a little bit of background of why Peter even wrote this book. Now the emperor in Rome at the time was Nero, and many of you we've heard if you grew up in church, you've known that we've heard about Nero and what he did and how incredibly cruel he was to the Christians back then, but actually this letter was written before Nero began backing really his heavy persecution to Christians. So it's really before that, okay? It was before, we've all heard of the Great Fire where, where, you know, supposedly Nero is fiddling away. The Great Fire in Rome that burned, you know, almost two-thirds of the city. This is before that even happened. And by the way, that fire is what started igniting the whole thing because he blamed it on the Christians, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. So that's when the persecution really started. It's almost, like, it's almost like Peter could smell the smoke of something coming. It's coming, okay? He wanted to prepare 
these believers to live in a culture that was really at odds with their faith. And wouldn't you agree that's what we live in right now? A culture that is truly at odds with our faith. There's a commentator, uh, Karen Jobes. She says, For the original readers to whom Peter wrote, their identity as Christians was not only the source of great joy, but ironically also the reason they suffered grief in various kinds of trials. Because of their Christian, because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalized by their society alienated in their relationships and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing and possibly worse. This is what they were dealing with. Peter knew the difficulties that his readers were facing were most likely causing doubt and doubt that God was working in their life and that God was ever there in the first place. What is going on? He knew that this doubt was causing some of them to be tempted to abandon or even waver in their faith. Really boiled down, the book that we're going to be looking at for the next few months is a book of encouragement and instruction. I hope that you feel really encouraged and really instructed over the next few months as we, as we look at this. At the end, if you flip in your Bibles, at the end of this book, I'll put the verse will be up there, but in chapter 5, verse 12, right at near the end, Paul says this, By Silvanus, this is the guy that actually wrote the letter that he he gave it to, the faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What Peter's saying here is that every single thing that is in this, that is stated in this book, is about God. It is true and it can be trusted. You can stand on this. You can take it to the bank. If that, was a, if that was a saying back then, he would have said it. It is true. You can stand on it. So for those of us that are ever experiencing persecution or just struggles because of our faith, that's who this book is for. Peter was told, What Peter wants to help Christians understand is that suffering for living a life that Christ calls us to, it's not futile. It's not in vain at all. We're going to see in this book that that suffering is, we're going to suffer because he suffered. He suffered, yet yet suffering for Christ, when what happens to us, we share in his glory. We're going to see some cool things about this. Jesus Christ suffered for doing the will of his Father in a world that did not know him. They had no clue who he really was. So really... (laughs) If we're a Christ follower, why would we be surprised at all that what we believe and how we live our lives is at odds with the world? We're a Christ follower. I prefer that term a lot of times actually than Christian. I'm a Christian. I'll shout it out. That's fine. But you know, Christian has, can have a pretty negative connotation in some, some places. So I, I'm a Christ follower. I follow Jesus. So if I follow Jesus, I could pretty much depend on the fact that I'm going to be treated in ways that he was treated. We shouldn't be surprised. Really, the key principle of this whole book is found in how Peter addresses his readers in this very first verse here. It's in these two words, elect exiles, okay? Elect exiles. What he is doing here, Peter is doing something very, very important here. 
And he does it throughout the whole letter. He's helping his readers to understand their true identity. Who are you in Jesus? Who are you as a follower of Jesus? That's what Peter is doing here. Okay? This is so important because understanding our true identity is what defines how we live our life as a Christian in a world that is hostile to biblical principles. Okay? So what's an elect exile? If we're elect exiles, what is that? Well, first, an elect and you'll see it up on the screen, an elect ex in a second here. An elect exile is someone who has been specifically chosen by God according to his plan and purposes to be his child. That's what he is. We are chosen by God according to his plan and his purpose to be his child. That's what elect means. That's what being elected means. We're going to see later in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. You've been in church for a while. You've heard this great verse. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, you and I are not chosen by God for his purposes because we're so wonderful. I know there's a lot of great people here. I like to love a lot of you. You're more wonderful. But you know what? That's not why we're chosen. Do you know why? Do you know why you, a follower of Jesus, that you were chosen? Do you know why you were chosen by God? I have a great theological answer for that. Because. That's why. Because. Because you were. We're going to look more at this in a little bit. But because you were. We get so hung up on this, all the predestination talk and all the different things like that that are important issues to talk about. But really, the reality is we're chosen because we're chosen. God decided to do it. Yeah. And we don't have to question it. We don't have to get too wrapped up in all the details of that. An elect exile is also a foreigner, okay? An alien, okay? In the Bible, Exile is always referring to people that are in a temporary resident, okay? They're temporary residents in a foreign place. This is what an exile is, okay? Peter is using this metaphor for the Christian journey. He's using this metaphor to help us understand what it means to live this life as we walk through this earthly journey here. We are exiles, but we're chosen, Okay? He presents Christians as strangers and aliens in this world, foreigners in a strange land. Do you ever feel like that? I sure do sometimes. Unfortunately, probably I don't enough, but we do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this reminds me of when uh, many of you know my wife and I and our family, we were missionaries overseas twice, once in Germany for a stint and then in the Dominican Republic for a stint. And I got to tell you, um, we were foreigners and we knew it. I mean, we, we could tell we were foreigners. We were reminded every day by the language around us that we did not understand. By the way, the joke is, you've heard the joke, German is a language we're going to speak in heaven because it takes an eternity to learn. Uh, and it's true. It's very true. So we, we knew we were foreigners by that, by the cultural differences that we observed, especially in the Dominican. We definitely knew we were foreigners by the color of our skin and the height of our 
us. We knew we were foreigners. Now, because of our new birth as Christians in Jesus Christ, we now have a brand new citizenship, okay, in God's kingdom. But that's not all. We have a new identity, a brand new identity, okay? You see, Peter knows that, like I said, how we view our identity in Christ will determine not only how we handle difficulty in being a Christian and difficulty in persecution, not only that, but our, our, how we handle living in a world that doesn't jive with us at all. They don't share our same values, Okay? But our identity, is the, our identity in Christ is the one thing that's going to help us to understand, how do I live then? How am I supposed to make this happen? So what does it mean to be an exile, an elect exile? What is our true identity as Christ? Well, well we get the answer to that question. The answer to what is it, what is it, what does it mean to be one in, chapter, in verse 2? Okay, look at verse 2 in a second here. We're going to say, it says, first, it's, well, before we look at that, let me tell you something first. It's important to note that um, in explaining this next verse, Peter's going to do something very interesting here. What he is going to do, he's going to highlight really the vital part that each person of the Trinity plays in us being chosen. Okay? He's going to make that very important. All three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in us being chosen to be God's child. Let's go to verse 2. Verse 2 says, the first part of verse 2 at least says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So the first thing that it means to be an elect exile is that you've been chosen by God the Father's foreknowledge. That's the first thing it means. The first thing it means you've been chosen by God the Father's foreknowledge. As followers of Christ, we've been chosen by God. Get this, before time even began. We were chosen before time began according to his plan and according to his purpose to be his children. Isn't that, that just blows my mind to think of that. Before time even began, God the Father chose us. Once again, um, uh, the commentator Carrie Job, she's probably the best commentator on this whole book, she says, Peter is reminding his readers that the God who took the initiative in their lives has drawn them into an intimate, loving, and redemptive relationship with him, but also one in which he claims supreme authority over our lives. You know, this is so important to remember. So important to remember, especially when we were faced with difficult circumstances that may cause us to possibly doubt the goodness, the faithfulness, and how wonderful God is. Remember, he chose us, okay? No matter what's happening in life, it doesn't matter how life is going. As believers, we can know that before time began, we were chosen by God to be his child. That's who you are as a follower of Jesus. If you say, yes, I'm a Jesus follower, I follow Trace, that's who you are. It's like God, before time, looked out over a crowd and said, I choose Marcia. I choose Lee, 
I choose Gary. I, that's the, it's amazing. Now, once again, don't get all hooked, freaked out about how the predestinations, does that mean he didn't choose? So That's not the point here at all that Peter's trying to get at. He's trying to get at the fact that at the very beginning of a book where he's trying to help us understand how to live the life in this world, he's trying to establish identity that you were chosen by the creator of the universe, looked out over the crowd and chose you. Remember, I used that analogy before when we were talking about you know, the whole kickball thing. You, choose, you know, are chosen for teams when you're a kid, you know, for the team. I felt so, I got chosen. I didn't get last. You know, yes, you, you felt, I felt significant. That's nothing compared to what we have with God has chosen us. Now that, my friends, that is a strong anchor to hold on in times of doubt. Doubt's going to come. It's going to come. There will be times when we doubt possibly God's goodness, maybe even that God even exists. Who knows? But doubt, that's what the enemy used to love. This is a great anchor to hold on to. We've been chosen by the foreknowledge before time began. Okay? Second thing. Second thing that it means to be an elect exile is that you have been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Whoa, big Bible words, okay? Big ones here. You've been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification really simply means that we have been set apart, okay? We've been set apart as holy, okay? For a specific purpose in God's plan. Now, you're probably thinking, Rob, I do not feel set apart and whole, as holy. It's because you're looking at yourself not as the way God sees you. And I do this all the time. Okay? The Holy Spirit's job, one of his jobs, is to, when we become a Christian, is to set us apart for his purposes. Okay? For him. That's so important that you understand that. To be sanctified by the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit does the work of drawing us to God. I love this quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, it is a spirit who first stirs in the heart a reaching towards God, quickens one's understanding of the gospel, convicts of sin, reassures of pardon, and transforms by the character, the character by the fruit of God virtues. I don't know about you, but do you remember? Do you remember the first time, that time that the Spirit did this in your life, the first time where the Holy Spirit drew you to God? I was only 12, okay? I was 12 years old when I invited Christ to take, come into my life, whatever I understood as a 12-year-old. But I can tell you, I remember, the only thing I remember, well, two things. I was sitting on my mom's bed with her. And the second thing was that I could still remember their, that sense of being drawn towards God. I didn't understand it. I, I couldn't articulate that. All I know is when I think back to that, all I can remember is a sense that God was drawing me to himself. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, sanctification is what happens when we come to Jesus for that first time and ask him to be our savior. But sanctification is not a one-time thing. Okay, that is what Peter's talking about here. But sanctification is not a one-time thing. It happens just then. The Holy Spirit is continually stirring our hearts towards God, helping us to better understand the full truth of the gospel, of convicting us of our sin, reassuring of us of our pardon of that sin, and transforming our character, like Martin Luther said, 
by his fruits of virtue. This is great news. This is great news that no matter what is happening in our lives, we can be assured that the Holy Spirit has set us apart for a specific purpose in God's plan and will continue to work in our lives to fulfill that purpose. Now, we're never left alone. That's what kills me about this. And just, I love this fact that we are never left alone to try to figure out God. We're never left alone to try to figure out how do I know what my purpose in life is. I've worked with young people for most of my life. And that's one of the big things is how, what am I supposed to do? What am, now that I work with older adults mostly, I'm realizing they're asking the same question. Okay. <laughs> what is my purpose? What is my purpose here? You've got to understand, there's someone's job to help you with that purpose, the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit's job because he set you apart as holy, called you to a purpose. Now, we may struggle a lifetime trying to figure out that purpose, but it's the journey of figuring out that purpose that makes us more and more like Jesus and gives us more and more satisfaction in life. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Okay, third thing. The third thing it means is to be, to be an elect exile. It has to do with your, pers- with your purpose in life. It's this obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ, okay? That phrase in there for obedience to Jesus, for the sprinkling of his blood, means that because we are God's elect exiles, we strive with all of our hearts to be obedient to Jesus to the life that he has called us to live, okay? And using this phrase, Peter, really what he's, what he's doing is he's thinking of the Old Testament. He's, th- he's harking them back to the Old Testament because these people would know a lot of these stories that, where God made a covenant, okay? This promise, he made a covenant with his people, the people of Israel, back in Exodus chapter 24. You can read about it later. After receiving the law from God, God, Moses got the law. Moses tells the people. He, he lets them know what it's all about. He read it all before them. He told them. And then the people responded. The whole crowd responded by saying this. They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay? We promise. We promise to be obedient. Then Moses, what he did is he took this blood. I know this sounds really crazy in our society, but this is what he did. This is what made it sealed the deal for them. He sprinkled the people with blood. Sounds weird, but that's what he did. He sprinkled him with blood, which symbolized the covenant that God was making with his people, that he would keep his promises and that they would keep their promise to obey only him. Only him. Now, we know how that turned out, don't we? We know how Israel did on that one and obeying God constantly. You can just read, read, the, read through the Old Testament and you see how well Israel did with obeying only God. Because even with our best intentions, because of our sinful nature, it is impossible to be completely obedient 100% to God. What Peter's saying here is that our ultimate purpose as followers of Jesus is to completely obey him, yet we know on our own that it's absolutely impossible We need to remember it's absolutely impossible to do it on our own. That's why Jesus shed his blood. The power 
Get this phrase. The power to obey is in the blood. Now, that's a phrase that the world would not like or understand. But for us, it's everything. The power to obey is in the blood. It's in the blood of this new covenant that we have now that was established by Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. As followers of Christ, we're no longer under this burden of finding uh, finding freedom in obeying everything and not making any mistakes. We don't have that burden anymore. Many things of the law still apply to our life, but we're free from having, oh, I broke the law, now I'm guilt, guilt, guilt. We're free from that because of what Jesus did. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39 says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of, man forgiveness of, this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. You see, the law could not do what the blood of Jesus does. It transforms our hearts to want to obey. It's not just about, see, so many people look at our Christianity and say, it's all about what you can and can't do. No. It's about a transformed heart that doesn't want to do and does want to do. That's what the new covenant is about. Okay? It's about pleasing Jesus. And when I don't do what I don't want to do, I don't live in guilt and shame because I don't have to measure up to that anymore. To feel free. The blood also cleanses us from the sin of disobedience. That's the other side of the coin of that one. It's so wonderful. It's in this new covenant that is sealed by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood that Peter's readers and us are called to. We are called to this. So we see here that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all work together in choosing us as exiles. Okay, elect exiles. I know a lot of this is stuff. Oh, I've heard this in church a lot. And, but what, this, what Peter's doing here, what Peter really doing is he, in these first two verses here, he is, ra- he is wrapping the whole Christian life in one tight ball. I used to play a thing called, I don't know if they call it anywhere else. We called it cup ball. And what we would do is we'd take a little cup and then we'd wrap it in uh, masking tape. And we had hundreds of these throughout my childhood. And these are what we hit with plastic bats because they go a little further. The Whipple ball didn't go far enough. But these didn't go really, they didn't hurt you really bad. But they were wrapped really tight. That is what Peter is doing. He's wrapping tight our whole Christianity in these two verses and really pretty much everything he's going to talk about for the rest of this letter in these first two verses here. Because we need to understand who we are. Just like those Christians who are about to face, we're facing problems, but the heat was about to go up. How do we then live? It's by knowing who we are. So, in this last part of the verse, let's look at this, wrap this up here. The last part of verse two, Peter gives us, gives kind of a word of blessing. Actually, this is kind of like his, he's, this is how you usually say, hello, friends. He finally says the hello, friends kind of thing here. He says, hello, may grace be with you, or something like that, kind of a greeting. He actually gets the greeting right now, finally. Okay, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, we all know, if you've been in church for a while, you know what grace is. Grace is that unmerited favor from God, 
something that we can't earn. And I know, yes, Christians, we realize we can't earn it, but here's something we forget all the time. We know it in our head, we forget it. We can't lose it either. Can't fall out of grace with God. That's an amazing thing. That unmerited favor, we always have it, even in the midst of our most heinous sin. If we are true followers of Christ and we are wanting to be all that God wants us to be, we still receive his grace because of who we are. Who we are makes all the difference, okay? This peace refers really, the peace that Peter's talking about here, it's this inner peace. It's a state of tranquility that we have, okay? It's a peace that goes, that's tranquility with both God and other people. Remember, he's going to help people to understand, how do I live in this world? How do I live in a world that's completely against me? And here he's saying peace. He's using the word peace. Because that's when we truly understand who we are, identity in Christ. We can live at peace in a world that absolutely hates what we believe. It's possible. And we can live at peace with the people that don't like what we like. It's totally possible. I think we forget that a lot of times as Christians. We're not going to find true grace and peace from the world. We try, don't we? Then you can keep trying. But those, just like those that have tried before, it's not going to work. Inevitably going to come up empty-handed every single time. Grace and peace, like I said, is a result of understanding our identity as elect exiles. Okay? Elect exiles. So, how are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus in a culture that is so counter to what we see in the scriptures? Like I said, by knowing that we are elect exiles that have been chosen by God the Father's foreknowledge, chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit, and that we have a purpose, and that's obedience to Christ, and that we have forgiveness when we fall short. Really knowing this also, what it does is it takes away the temptation, the temptation to either blend in to the culture, to withdraw from it, or to go to war with it. Really what it is, you guys, is we're to hold fast to the message of the gospel as we engage the culture around us in a way that honors people, brings glory to God, and builds his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being a God who seems complex, yet is so simple. A God that just absolutely loves. Thank you, God, that we are chosen exiles. This is not our home. We our citizenship is somewhere else. So God, when we grapple with the frustration that we have to deal with with our own sin and with the culture around us, God, help us to remember that this is temporary. Yet at the same time, God, you've called us to live where we live and how we live. So I pray, God, that you'd give us wisdom, especially as we go through this book, as we see different, the, so many different things that it says about how to live as these exiles, these chosen exiles. God, may we be more and more 
the people that you desire us to be. And may we experience more and more of your incredible grace and an incredible peace that comes from being an elect exile. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song.